You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 69 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Thursday, the 5th of September, 2019. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Will Forster. Hello, everybody. Jesse Carnes. Hello. And Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. My face is covered in like a layer of fish juice. <laughs> I, I, met, I, I went to meet with Sebastian de Leon this afternoon, uh, who's designing the Kids Club trailer for us. So mm-hmm. for listeners who don't know, we have a... When we bought the lot that we're putting Surf Simply on, there's like a quebrada or like a stream that runs through the corner and kind of slices this corner off the side. So we thought rather than build on it, we would just keep it available and build a little kids club on it that we've talked about in the show before. But because of setback restrictions, because it's next to the nature reserve, it's not quite big enough to build on. So we, we're building kind of a trailer. Anyway, this cool designer from San Jose called Sebastian de Leon is helping us design it. And he was in Nassara this afternoon. And we were over there kind of measuring out how it's all going to fit and how we're going to like landscape around it and stuff. And then I met with uh, the other contractors that, that, you know, work with Sebastian that are doing some stuff on the hotel. And we had a little meeting in the office in the staff room. And you know how Dennis and Yai bring over any like food that doesn't get eaten that they've made for lunch? Yeah, I just walked into the staff room and they'd done clams or mussels or something. Oh my God, it was so delicious. Two huge bowls of like clams and mussels. And I'm kind of a sucker for that stuff. And it was kind of in like a thick, kind of sticky sauce. Mm-hmm. And I thought, uh, I went, oh, do any of you guys want to grab some clams and mussels? And they're all a bit like, no, no. And they sat down and I thought, oh, well, that'll be... I'll get some. And then I sat down and we were all having like a serious meeting about all of the work that needs to be done in the resort in the off season. And I started trying to eat them, but it's a bit too viscous to get it in your mouth. So it's all like <laughs> running down my face. And I could feel them looking at me just going, this is not appropriate behavior for sort of a work meeting. But then I thought, well, it would be weird if I just stopped, if I just push on through, but I'll just figure out how to eat them without spilling them better. And, and I couldn't. And I just kind of kept going. And it just got more and more awkward. <laughs> Did you use the fork? Or did you use, like, the other clam to pull the muscle out of the clam? Oh, my God. I tried everything. I tried the fork. I tried getting one clam to squeeze the other clam out. And in the end, I tried, like, sucking them out of straight. But then it wouldn't come out. And then it run down my chin. And then someone did say something really important. And I have to make, like, an important decision about some bit of work we're going to do or not do. And as I'm talking to them, I can feel fish juice just running down my <laughs> neck. Anyway. So no matter how much... I washed my face. Now I still feel like I have that layer of fish juice all over my face. Oh, I walked out of the resort afterwards on my way here and a monkey was sitting on my car. That's pretty rare. They don't normally come down out of the trees. They usually just sit up there and mind their own business. And it was just, usually they do like a, a, they'll do like a dump on your car. Yeah. You know, (laughs) as their way of Because that would be rude not to. Yeah. I feel like they're just going like, welcome to the jungle, you know. (laughs) But um, yeah, it was just sitting there. But then it kind of, it jumped off. It was pretty cute. Oh, where was it? Right outside the entrance to the resort, you know, where the taxis pull in and they they get off and they come in. Oh, it's because there's that little papaya tree. It was in the papaya tree, that's right. Yeah, it's got fruit on it. It was probably sitting on my car going, this is where I'm going to do my dump. Now, climb climb up into the tree. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, Callum got a good photo. I think he posted it on Instagram today of that monkey. Yeah, it was really cute. Ironically, it was taking a dump on a black car. And it was... Um, how's everyone else been? Well, actually, first things first, before we go any further, uh, apologies, listeners. I realized when I was editing the last episode of the show that uh, we were referring to it as uh, episode 67, and it was, of course, episode 68, because 
yes, I'm an idiot, basically. Uh, so sorry about that. I think that your diligence for factual accuracy is admirable. In a world where the President of the United States has just suggested stopping Hurricane Dorian by blowing up a nuclear bomb in the middle of it. Uh, that's not the... That's not, that's that's not, not even the, the craziest that's thing not the cra- he said this week. Well, no, or did, even today. Did you see the, the whole Sharpie pen map thing? Oh my thing? God, yeah. That's amazing. Although, that is the best thing ever because it's created so many f***ing hilarious memes yeah. of people drawing stuff on... Yeah. pictures with sharpies you know it's and it's funny for us because as british people our political system is is so stable completely stable well have you seen all the um <laughs> the other thing that's gone pretty good is all the memes of uh jacob rees mogg lounging mm-hmm. in the house of parliament and people have greens pulled that away and dropped it into all sorts of stuff oh really i haven't seen that that oh, guy's gross, Jason, Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's such a weird individual. Anyway, he? by the time we've edited this podcast and put it out, because there is a bit of a lag at the moment, I'm sure that, that Brexit and climate change will have been sorted out. So yeah, I'm sure that's it'll all be fine. fine. <laughs> what do you guys think about this? So I was talking to Jordan yesterday about what kind of surfboard she wanted to buy, because she has a seaside, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a little high volume for her, possibly. And the seaside, for listeners who don't know, is a fairly flat fish-esque board. It's actually a quad, um, but it's, it's more fishy than it is shortboardy. And, you know, she was talking about getting something a little bit more shortboardy. And, uh, you know, I have been surfing a twin fin quite a lot, like a proper classic glassed-in twins twin fin. And I've been having a lot of fun on it. And those twin fins, I cannot bottom turn, especially on my backhand at all. And... Uh, they're not really designed for that, you know? They're really fantastic for going really fast down the line, especially if you, you're in kind of weak surf and you want to just get a ton of speed going and then you do these horizontal big turns or a floater or a big roundhouse cutback. Or actually, if you're riding in not too big barreling waves and you want to take off and get going really fast, as long as you're really careful not to let the rail disengage, you can get so much down the line speed that you can make, you can backdoor little sneaky uh, barrel closeouts that are, that are thrusty, you just wouldn't have the downline speed to get through. But what twin fin fishes are, are not good for, in my opinion, is just good old-fashioned contest-style top-to-bottom surfing, 12 o'clock drill type stuff. And, you know, I broke a couple of boards recently, as I mentioned in the last episode, so I was looking at, you know, what to buy next. And I was looking at the same kind of crossover boards that most short boarders ride nowadays, the sort of the shorter, fatter, wider, flatter short bo- uh, shortboards. And I was thinking, you know what? Like, I think I'm going to have just a twin fin and then I'm going to have like a, a longer, thinner, like real proper shortboard shape. So, you know, have my 5.4 twinny and then make that's like, you know, 30 liters and then have like a 6.0 like FRK or one of those ones by the, the Firewire or you know, one of the Almeric protons, something like that. It's got a bit of rocker, really thin, really long. And um, and then I've got two really different kinds of surfing. And I think you could make a really good case, which I am in fact making right now, <laughs> not to have like a crossover board, not to have it in the middle board, but instead to just have these two real different types of board for different types of surfing. What do you guys think about that? Well, I think you can get a twin fin pretty vertical, in my opinion. Well, Matt, Matt Wilkinson can. Watching that... that J-Bay contest where they're going right on the on those twin fins and all those goofy footers are bottom turning them kind of made me feel like maybe the problem was mine. I was just going to say I do agree that it is quite hard to to get it vertical, but it is possible if you are on a twin fin out there to, you know, be performancey and have 
as long as your technique is good and your and your rail is engaged, like you were saying, to to create that performance out of a twin fin. So I think it's possible. I think it surely depends. The idea of there being no crossover board surely just depends on where you define A and B. Because you, you're arbitrarily saying that, that your A is a performance shortboard and your B is a twin fin fish. You could just as easily have uh, decided that Jordan Seaside was that B point and you weren't going to have a crossover board in between those two. Or you could take even like a performance shortboard and a slightly detuned performance shortboard and say you weren't going to have a, a, a crossover board. Okay, but given that the, the goalposts are arbitrary, but I've put A and B where they are, mm-hmm. what, what do you think? As to not having any other sort of board? As to, as to having an A and a B board, but not a whatever halfway between A and B is. Well, <laughs> we should have started I, with A and C, <laughs> shouldn't we? <laughs> that would have made this conversation a lot easier. <laughs> B2. Uh, no, I, well, I, I just think it depends on what the two boards are and what conditions you're likely to set. I mean, the classic thing that most surfers either have or aspire to have is like a three-board quiver, isn't it? And you've got a small wave board and a bigger wave board and a day-to-day board. And for some people, that small wave board might be a fish, and for others, it's a long board. And for some, that step-up big wave board might be a, like, you know, 6'6 pintailed gun. And for others, it might be a, like, 9-foot paddling rhino chaser for 50-foot waves. Um, But I think, you know, where there's always going to be that middle ground. I mean, you say you're only going to have those two boards. How many boards are at the bottom of your house right now? We're not in double figures. <laughs> How many letters are there in the alphabet? <laughs> but, you know, like you, you could define, you, it's not like you're going to stop surfing any of those other boards. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, everything I just said, I do genuinely think, and I spent hours trawling through the Firewire website, <laughs> and then I ended up looking at the no-brainer, which is like a total crossover board, and I was yeah. like, well, that looks fun. <laughs> so that's why I ended up ordering. There's, uh, yeah, some, like, cognitive dissidence going on there. What are you doing? Are you going to pick it up in Florida, or are you getting it sent uh, down here? Carrie-Anne wanted a greedy beaver to take to Indo, so oh. she was ordering one anyway, and, and then she said she'd bring it down when she comes down in October, so nice. she's going to bring nice. it down for me. I think the A, B thing should also be dependent on what your A and B surf is because Mm -hmm. a Guiones, like low tide is pretty damn shoreboardable. High tide is pretty damn fishable. But mid-tide Guiones, especially if you have like a primary and secondary swell, you know, you can have head high sets on a thigh high day at Guiones sometimes. Mm. Um, And I think having something that can accommodate over one session for both of those, you know, types of wave, I think can be a bit useful sometimes as well especially at a beach break yeah yeah i always result back to my thruster pen like high performance board just because i want to have an easy surf but like whenever i want to challenge myself i take i have like exactly what you were saying i have a twin fin i have more of like a high performance than your old board yeah um and then i have a crossover as well but i always go to the the almeric the semi-pro i don't know that's funny. I, so I go in, I, I mean, I th- the honest answer is I think it's fun to have as many boards as possible, <laughs> but I, I found myself going through them in a, in a kind of a cyclical fashion because whatever one board is good at and another board's less good at, you know, you, like we've talked about on the show before, you turn the volume up on one thing and it goes down on another thing. And I find that whatever it is that's frustrating about one board, I then want for my next surf. So that I'm like, our next surf, I'm going to take out that 20 because this felt so sluggish going down the line. 
you know, and then that, that board will kind of, I'll struggle backhand bottom turning it and I'll really want to get vertical on my backhand. So we're like, well, next surf, I'll take out my like real short boardy short board, you know, and then maybe I won't have a high wave count and I'm like, well, next surf, I'm going to take out my long board. So I think that's why it's good to have, I'm going to say eight boards. <laughs> <laughs> well, off the, off the back of my uh, musing on the last episode, I, I did pull the trigger. I have bought two, uh, two new boards. What ones um, did you go for? I went for a lost puddle jumper with a round tail. And a lost quiver killer, also with a rounded tail. Nice. Um, so one of them is, I think, five ten and thirty six liters. As a little sort of grovel, high tide given as smaller wave sort of a crossover board. And then the other one is is not a full blooded performance shortboard, but I don't feel like I really surf well enough to justify having something like that. But I don't think that that there's a lot that that quiver killer isn't going to be able to do. What about you guys, Will and Jesse? What have you been up to? Will and I were sitting on the porch mm. drinking coffee and a white Jimny comes cruising up, stops at our gate, rolls their window down and goes, I love the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Rolls the window up and keeps going. I've been getting ready for, to go to Endo. I'm very excited out to the Mentawis with our Surf Simply trip that we also talked about last episode. Mm, yeah, I've, I've been packing my bags this week. Yeah, and we've been packing our bags too and, and getting ready to go. And the only thing that's missing this time are surfboards. This is the first time that I've traveled to Endo and or like to a wave without my bringing my own board. What are you surfing when you get there? So we're going to go, I'm going to change it up, but basically we're using Oweco to surf there. We're going to use their boards that are at the Kandui's Resort. And um, Oweco is a company that allows you to rent boards that are located in all different locations. And you basically sign up and rent boards from them. So it's pretty cool. So you don't have to bring a board with you and you can travel to all these destinations without a board bag. And this is my first time using it. And I'm, I'm pretty excited. The reason I think a lot of people have not rented boards is you never know what you're going to end up you know you walk into the local surf shop and they might have some short boards but they're maybe a bit beaten up they're maybe not in your size it's a bit of a gamble as to what you're going to end up with and Awaco is the first company that I've seen that have sort of entered the 21st century with with that model in that if you go online the full inventory for each of their locations is on there you can see the boards they've got the sizes they've got and they they certainly say this will be an interesting experiment seeing seeing how it runs, but they certainly say that they turn them over pretty regularly so that they're not getting dinged up and damaged. And they are, you know, it's it's Almerics, Losts, Firewires, Hayden Shapes, you know, they're, they're good premium shortboards. So their business works on a subscription model, right? No, you, you have to have a user account with them but there's no subscription and you just pay a per day price to rent boards i'd be really interested to know how, how it goes and what you what, whether the boards you get are good because that's what i would worry about yeah that's what I, i'm a little worried about as well but i mean harrison who's been on top of it he's been emailing back and forth with them and they said that they're in good condition but um i just looked looked up the board that i'm renting it's a chili board and it's called a rare bird five nine twenty eight liters so that will be the barrel board that I go with. <laughs> but there's other options too. Like there's there's a bunch of Almerics. There's a bunch of Firewire boards. They look, I mean, it looks really awesome. So super excited. And I think we're doing this because, Will, do you remember the last time we traveled with boards to Endo? Mm -hmm. And we were at Kuala Lumpur trying to get to the other terminal. And you have to like get transport to get you over there. You can't walk. And... 
we were waiting for a taxi. The taxis wouldn't take us because we had a board bag. The subway wouldn't take us because we had a board bag. And we were like, what do we do? We had like an hour to get to the next flight. And like we basically had to bribe someone to take us with our board bag. It was mm. a nightmare. We just bribed a random dude that had a minivan. Yeah. <laughs> like you. Take we us. need you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm really looking forward to not traveling with three or four boards with us. So mm. it should be pretty, pretty easy. It always feels like a bit of a luxury when you're when you're traveling boardless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Will, what have you been up to? Well, Jesse just said that I've been packing for Indo, but really it's like a, I've been mentally packing. Yeah, <laughs> that's still packing. Yeah. We've both been mentally packing. Yeah, a lot of mental. I'm actually, we, there's one more race. There's Monza and the Formula One schedule before the race we're going to in Singapore. So I'm itching. I'm, I'm ready to get Monza out of the way, guys. <laughs> you know, since you all how much, how much of your time frame has been to your packing and your kit list and how much has been to the Formula One? We've planned our Formula One trip way more than the Indo trip. Yeah. Like we've looked up restaurants. We, we've looked up like places to go and like. Yeah, we're going to be able to hear the cars from our, our hotel room. Is that a, that's a bad thing? I would think. No, no, no. no. <laughs> that's a great thing. I'm not going to sleep the entire time. Look at me disagreeing. Like I'm a Formula One fan. Like no, <laughs> I'm probably going to be like, whoa, <laughs> quiet down. <laughs> Um, yeah, four years at Sir Simply, guys. Just closing my fourth season. It's been quite life-changing. Aww. I think so. it's been quite slog. <laughs> <laughs> News-wise, the biggest thing that's been on just running up to us recording this episode, although uh, by the time you listeners are hearing this, this will be a little bit out of date, but I think all of us have probably spent a good chunk of the last week or so watching the WCT event at Chopu. I I don't off I can't often justify sitting down and watching a surf contest because it's just such a huge investment in time. Um but that day at Chopu that was day the penultimate day yeah. where they were running back to back heats and it was massive and there was just constantly waves being caught was like it was mental. It was like when you watch the replay and you have it on just watching only the waves, you know, but without the gaps. Yeah. It was like that, but that's just what the actual webcast was like. And every single one, well, not every one of them, but like so many of those waves that were coming in were just these ferocious, like, death pits. Do you remember the first wave of the morning where, was it Jadson Andre just took off and got axed right in the head? And I was like, oh, going to put work on hold for the day. I'm going to be watching this. I felt like the conditions were almost like athlete leveling because anyone could, you know, as long as you're, as long as you commit, yeah, it was more about fear been. and commitment Absolutely. than it was about technical yeah, skill. Yeah. Every single one of those guys had the technical skill to make that drop yeah. and make that barrel, but whether yeah. they had the the guts. Yeah, it was really hard to call the heats because, you know, when you're getting high scores on these epic waves, every every surfer was, you know. Mm. It was very cool that the WSL had just had helmets out for everyone to use. It's interesting how, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but like, often guiding people's behavior isn't so much down to people having information and making rational, logical decisions about things. It's just about, you know, you make one path of a path of slightly less resistance than the other path. And, you know, even just by hanging helmets out on the boat so that to grab a helmet, you just grab one and then you see more people wearing them and, you know, Mm. we're social beings. So when other people do stuff, we just do it too. That's the best way to get people to do stuff. Um, I think is fantastic because I mean at that place you just definitely need to wear a helmet like people will look back I've no doubt that 
the next generation of surfers will look back on people not wearing helmets at Chopu the way we look back on it not wearing seatbelts in cars. It's just madness. And or like snowboarding. Like when I started snowboarding when I was like 14, we never wore helmets. And now every single person wears helmets snowboarding and skiing. So. Yeah. It's more socially unacceptable to not wear. In fact, a lot of resorts now don't allow you on the mountain without one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I got caught out. I mean, this is a while back now. I went snowboarding for the first time in about 10 years. And of course I didn't take a helmet. Why would I? And then got there and <laughs> I, I was... imagine you on the top of the mountain with your cigarette and your whiskey and <laughs> that, no helmet. That was it, yeah. <laughs> my, my bright neon one-piece ski suit. <laughs> Well, it was fashionable last time I went. <laughs> um, but yeah, like every single time, like I was the only guy on the lift with, without a helmet on. So are you guys going to take helmets to Indo? Teal has offered her helmet to me. So yes, the only reason why I would be nervous because that means I now have to go out on a big day if now I bring the no helmet. Yeah. <laughs> like I definitely have to charge and go for it. But um, yeah, I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring one just in case Kendui's that left maybe gets big enough and maybe Will can be on the shoulder helping me into some waves. I think don't, go. <laughs> don't go, don't go, go. <laughs> it, it used to be, and we've we spoken about this on the show before. But like a couple of years ago, I I would have I would I think we joked about how you're a better surfer than I am. But when the waves get heavy, I have to like coax you into them. Like not so anymore. Well, like now, if you and I are out in pretty much any waves, I don't think that you would hold back on anything that I'd go on. No, I would. <laughs> <laughs> you charge way harder than me. Do you remember when we were in Indo um, in 2012, we went and we were surfing macaronis, just me and you. And there was like all of these guys out and it was like my turn to go. And you were like, if you don't go, I'm going to push you over the falls. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And I just like pumped down the line at Macaroni's and I was freaking out. And I was like, I don't know what was scarier. What about you, Will? Helmet? Not helmet? If I've got a helmet to wear, I'll wear a helmet, yeah. You can take mine if you want. Won't you be wearing it? Because you'll be there with me, next to me. <laughs> well, possibly, yeah, I don't know. I, I'll tell you the thing I'm really excited about. <laughs> Harry, is with cigarette and whiskey. This <laughs> <laughs> neon jumpsuit. jumpsuit. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm really excited about flying the drone out there. Um, I was packing that all up today to, to take, and I, yeah. The idea of flying that over some of those reefs and some of those those setups, like mm. I've, I feel like I've gotten quite good flying it here, but it's a beach break and it's very shifty and, you know, a, a huge part of what I'm having to do is try to spot the waves coming and predict where they're going to be and just being in the right place at the right time to get a cool shot actually is really hard work. Um, whereas with the reef break, like I know it... It's it's gonna be really easy to sit the drone exactly on the takeoff and 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 film someone surfing. So I'm super excited about that. I'm really pleased you're going to do that actually because we don't have Jose and the usual film team going, so we're not going to be able to make a movie like we usually do with the week's hair. But I think j- even just with the drone footage that you get, it, you know, that's that yeah. w- it'll be nice to be able to put something out for all the people that wanted to go that can come on the trip. What were we talking about? Oh, we were talking about Chopu, weren't we? It was. Um it was a very emotional final. I like wanted to, did you guys watch the final? I wanted to cry when, when Owen won. He like started to like, he put his head down when he won and he like just started to cry and That's his, Is that his first win since he's been away? It was his first win at Chopu. No, it's not. Was it? it? 
No, he's won it. He's got. He's won at Cloudbreak. He got the the double tens at Cloudbreak. I don't think he's won at Chopu before. Last year's final was Gabriel Medina and and him. So they were against each other, but oh, he was lost. It? Yeah, because Gabriel Medina was smaller, mm. and he like did like a barrel into an error or something, and then won the heat. So he like really wanted to win it this time, but it was cool because Owen and Gabriel Medina, they're like friends. So I feel like Gabriel Medina wasn't his like normal self when he loses he actually like was like happy for owen and I was well i guess they're both on the rip curl team right so yeah. they must travel together a lot yeah mm-hmm. and they were like talking about it leading up to the event like they went there to train together and stuff and i don't know it was a very sweet final i thought it was very very emotional mm-hmm. very cute i love uh i love watching owen wright surf and i loved his when he was because he was wearing a helmet all the way through the event and yep. i loved the reason that he gained when Rosie Hodges asked him why he was wearing a helmet. And he, rather than saying what most people would say, which is, oh, it would give me the confidence to go on a wave I might otherwise hold back on. And he goes, oh, it's because when there's a bomb coming in, I don't trust myself on, I'm just going to go. So I've got to look after the old (laughs) noggin. (laughs) I love it. Nice Australian accent too. Thanks, mate. Yeah. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, this isn't the most uplifting of feature pieces that I've done, but we'll just kind of plow through it either way. Don't worry, I'm going to do ocean plastics afterwards, so that'll cheer everyone up. Good, there we go. This is kind of going down that same route, so. Oh, so this is a kind of an environmental special episode. This is, actually, I I will say this, we've got a sort of environmental ocean plastics recycling episode and uh, actually in the news the other day was there is the first factory that is claiming to operate at zero waste the first surfboard factory that's claiming to operate at zero waste is uh, is just opening up which is kind of cool the fact that this is the news being the first zero waste factory is like a big reminder that the majority of a surfboard is you know kind of oil plastic all that kind of stuff so it's it's pretty terrifying really that we're not making plastic free boards or low carbon footprint boards or biodegradable boards or anything like that you know we produce around 400,000 surfboards each year um, and obviously the majority of those are oil and plastic pretty much in their entirety as well nowadays because there's you know rarely even a wooden stringer in a surfboard nowadays Um, I think before I start talking about what we can do um, with the already made stuff, I wanted to say kind of in big capital letters that we need like a, just a radical manufacturing solution in the first place. Um, you know, recycling is not the solution to our future plastic crisis, but only like a minuscule dent into the existing plastic crisis, which I imagine is what, Rue, you're going to talk about a lot next as well, um, of which our surfboards are contributing. Um, by volume, the largest part is the foam core, so uh, I'm going to kind of focus on that. And arguably, it's the worst part as well because it's expanded polystyrene foam or polyurethane foam. Um, so I'll briefly go through just what polyurethane is and what expanded polystyrene is so we can all kind of be on the same page. And to put it bluntly, polyurethane is a toxic product made from the oil and gas industry. Its production is a source of greenhouse gases and contributes to climate change. And polyurethane is a huge contributor to ocean plastics. Um, you know, if you imagine how lightweight it is, um, it makes it really easily swept away in the wind, into the waterways, into rivers, where it adds to the problem of ocean plastics. So how do we currently get rid of it? 
I didn't realize this, but polyurethane foam can be used as a fuel in an energy recovery process. Um, and I think this is the most interesting bit. Ton for ton, polyurethane contains the same amount of energy as coal, um, which makes it really efficient feedstock for municipal incinerators that use energy generation to heat public buildings. And then what comes out the other end? Do you have the same amount? I, I mean, there's a lot of CO2 coming out the other end. I have no idea, honestly. I don't know. Yeah, that. I would have thought so. I mean, it, effectively, it's... It's you're oil, burning isn't oil. It? Exactly. You're burning oil. Absolutely, right. yeah. But the advantage is that you're getting that that similar, like crazy energy density. That's what makes burning fossil fuels just so efficient. Weight for weight, there's mm -hmm. there's so much energy in there. Yeah. The other two things, sort of the two most common, uh, you know, recycling. Um, products uh, is cushioning inside you know sofa cushions and things like that and the other is uh, mattresses they make mattresses out of recycled polyurethane um, so if you've ever had a surfboard so good you want to sleep with it now is your chance <laughs> <laughs> oh, you with that joke uh -huh. when you're I actually put an asterisk eye roll in my <laughs> Um, so again, expanded polystyrene now, like I said above, uh, like polyurethane, like I said about polyurethane, we can almost say the same thing word for word. Uh, expanded polystyrene is a toxic product made by the oil and gas industry. Um, it's a source of greenhouse gases, contributes to climate change, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's just as bad. Again, it's a big contributor to ocean plastics from the way it gets in rivers uh, and to the oceans. Now, one of the difficulties of foam recycling in general, particularly EPS, you know, which is 98% air, which when contained in postal packaging shapes or surfboard shapes, it's really difficult to transport large quantities until it's been crushed. So you can't fit a load into a single truck. So really you have to process it before you can then transport it to be processed. So it's a really inefficient process um, to, to have it recycled in the first place. Um, I read a few articles saying that EPS is more environmentally friendly than polyurethane. Um, and that might be true, but I think it's kind of like saying that Crocs are more stylish than fanny packs, you know? <laughs> like, nobody really... Don't is. open up that toxic <laughs> yeah. debate again on Just the podcast. You leave my fanny packs out of this. Uh -huh. I don't think anybody's my neon, really... My neon one-piece ski suit? <laughs> Fine. Fine. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody's really winning here, Harry. <laughs> um, so... I just want to kind of horrify ourselves uh, for a moment with a comparison. Um, and I'm kind of bringing in styrofoam cups here as also kind of a third um, material because it's very similar in the way it pollutes, uh, you know, to ocean plastics and things like that. It's very similar. Um, it's oil-based again, um, and in the same way as EPS and polyurethane does, it's very light, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, based on their weight, a standard shortboard, so we'll just go with the smallest type of, of surfboard available. Um, the core contains within it the equivalent of about 412 ounce styrofoam cups. So they're the ones you're gonna get with your coffee. So about 400 of those cups are, are within one surfboard. Um, that means within the 400,000 surfboards that were made last year, we've put out the equivalent of about 160 million styrofoam cups. Wowzers. I was just thinking about how quick Asher gets through surfboards <laughs> and how much coffee he drinks and wondering whether he gets through more material <laughs> through one or the other. Asher, please write in. <laughs> um, and most of those, you know, were not from already recycled foam made into new blanks. You know, this is new product that, that uh, these blanks are being made from, you know, fresh new foam, kind of just waiting to join the Pacific garbage patch um, once it snaps on your third surf, I imagine. Rue, actually, you could probably tell us that. 
Oh. <laughs> I said it wasn't a positive uh, piece, okay? You didn't say it was going to be bitchy. <laughs> um, did, has anybody heard of the, the Vistler Surfrider Foundation Creators and Innovators, the Upcycle competition? Have you heard yeah, of that? Yeah, that, that rings a bell. Yeah, they've been doing it for a few years now. Um, and a guy called Corey Nolan, he made a surfboard, a fish, in fact, out of styrofoam cups. Yeah. Um, and he used about 700 used Dunkin' Donut styrofoam cups as its foam core. Um, so again, this board was slightly higher volume than the 400 styrofoam cup shortboard I was talking about earlier. Um, and this board is perfect. It's functional. It has the same buoyancy properties and all those kind of stuff that you would expect. Um, it's quite characterful. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes there so you can have a little look at it. Um, but, you know, in in... This is an example. He's removed 700 styrofoam cups that would have become immediate trash, you know, potentially to landfill or, or hopefully to a recycling center, but unlikely. Um, and a quote from Corey, he said, from what I understand, uh, they sell an average of, th- uh, this is Dunkin' Donuts, they sell an average of 30 cups of, copy- of coffee per second worldwide. Um, so in consideration for his creation and assuming there are about 700 coffee cups in the board, I could have had enough material to make a new surfboard every 23.3 seconds. That is Whoa. amazing. Although, just to be the annoying skeptic, then you have to think about how much carbon it would take to use the fuel to bring all of those cups to the place where he's shaping the surfboards from the places where they're selling the coffee. Because that, that's always the thing. It's like, it's always the, with the thing with recycling, right? It's always like, well the transport of recycling the thing to somewhere else and then the energy used in the recycle process mm-hmm. often tips the scales of something not necessarily being better to recycle than not recycle, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, just this throwing is, that out there. This is all <laughs> so negative. Isn't it? It's terrifying, you know, but that's the thing, you know, I don't think we always understand how much, you know, personal responsibility we have when it comes to to the, our plastic use and just reducing it as much as as we possibly can, mm-hmm. um, you know. I may turn some of that on its head with my piece. Okay, that'd so be great. gear up your loins. Girdle up your loins? What do you do with loins? Do you gear them or girdle them? I think you girdle the loins. Okay, we'll you? girdle them up. Okay, I'm <laughs> girdling as we speak. Um, <laughs> so the lesson here, I think, as a minimum, we should be sourcing our blanks from recyc- recycled foam because they do exist. You know, they are quite commercially available. Um, and at least then no new foam was produced, uh, you know, for the surfing in- industry. And there are companies making blanks that way. The Waste to Waves program with Marco Foam, um, you can, they're, they're collecting packing foam and waste EPS um, and they have drop-off locations in, you know, mostly in California, honestly, but a lot of them, you know, to places like San Diego and LA where there are a lot of surfers, they have local drop-off points, um, which is, you know, fantastic. And assuming that loop continues, you know, there could be a point where there's no new EPS foam made and it's just a loop of recycling. And I guess that makes sense. I mean, going back to that point about, going to the point about um, a big problem with recycling is the transport of getting things to where they need to be recycled. Mm -hmm. I guess the nice thing about surfboards is that they're hyper-concentrated in some really small locations around Mm. the place. Yeah. And the surfboard manufacturer, well, a lot of surfboard manufacturing is concentrated around where surfing takes place. I mean, that's not Mm -hmm. true with some of the big factories like Firewire. Yeah, it's kind of moving away from that then now, isn't it? It's starting to, but I mean, I think it's a long way. You look at the biggest by volume sellers and there's one or two that are very, very high volume. Who are the biggest high volume sellers? Wavestorm. Yeah, I was about to say it would be Wavestorm. 
I think which they're, by volume. Yeah, they're definitely made overseas. But but and and after that, it probably is like boards coming out of the Cobra factory and Firewire and things like that. But below that, you are then looking at companies like Lost and Channel Islands and JS and DHD, which account for a lot of the the short boards going out, and they are located. You know, all, all of their factories are located pretty close to surfing. Mm-hmm. Just around Ash's house, basically. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, now, like most of my podcast pe- uh, features, I don't have a point necessarily. <laughs> I'm just bringing this information out. Um, but I think one thing uh, that I'll kind of conclude on almost is in the uh, in the car manufacturing industry, a few companies are starting to work together and share or open source, I guess, their technology with um, you know electric cars and and a hybrid. Uh, you know hybrid cars and things like that um, and with certain companies you know investing a little bit more R&D into their uh, their eco boards like Firewire as an example you know it'd be interesting I think to see if at some point in the future that technology would be open sourced and shared in a way where we can all benefit from you know having a lesser impact as an industry. Mm. Mm. I mean I think the biggest push really with with all those new technologies you know has, has got to be finding something that's just able to stand up to the abuse a little bit mm-hmm. longer isn't it i mean you can sort of understand when when an elite level athlete using the most stripped down high performance equipment going if that equipment is breaking occasionally but when the regular day-to-day here we go we can have a formula one analogy oh go on you know if a formula one car breaks you know a wishbone suspension because it hits a bump on the on the track mm-hmm. fair enough you know that thing's tuned to such a high degree it's such a a, a, a finite case study in, in performance engineering but if our cars broke suspension every time we hit a pothole like that that would be a lot more of a problem and mm-hmm. i think i think right now everybody's driving around in stuff that is as fragile as that F1 car. Yeah. Um, and, and finding something that is a bit more, a bit more utilitarian would be a, a, a great move. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that, I mean, just thinking about when we were building the resort and thinking about all of the lead certification stuff there, you know, it's not, very intuitive a lot of it like concrete as we know is a really big producer of co2 when you make it is not an environmentally friendly material but actually for a, for an environment for a building with a low environmental impact it's not a bad material to use because it lasts so long mm-hmm. you know and, and if we made it all out of like frigging organic compressed bamboo and it fell down and we had to just build it all again every six months you, you know you, it's actually a far more harmful way of building things obviously a slightly extreme example <laughs> but the point with surfboards that analogy kind of holds up i mean I don't know the data on surf techs versus, you know, a normal board, but mm. surf techs last for freaking ever. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had a couple of those uh, flyers, surf techs that we have at the resort. Like, you just can't freaking break those things, you know. We've had them for years and years and years, and they still surf like the day they were new. And, like, yeah, they don't, they're not quite as smooth when you put them on rail, and they do feel a little corky when you surf them. But, I mean, if you honestly just look at your own surfing versus the catastrophic nature of, of, of the, the way that we're treating our planet. And then you honestly want to look, look yourself in the mirror and go, 
oh, I do love the planet and I want to do everything we can to save it. But also, I mean, it's really important that my cutbacks are really smooth. So I <laughs> guess that's just a bullet the planet will have to take for me. Yeah. He says having just ordered a new board. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. The, the hypocrisy is, is just dripping out of the podcast. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. But, I, you know, I think that as, as an industry and as surfers, we often look at the materials and we should also look at the longevity of the board as like one of the biggest factors. Because if boards last twice as long, you're using half, as, half the amount of stuff just immediately. Mm-hmm. I think if, if manufacturers were to add, and maybe they do this, I know some do, but as a general uh, introduction, I wondered if, if manufacturers added some white pigment to their mm. otherwise clear mm. resin. Because people, you know, you look at a board and people don't like it if it starts to yellow. Yep. Yeah. Mm. You know, I, I was wonder if just going to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's amazing how, I mean, across just the whole of the area of economics and, and social sciences, it's amazing how doing something like that yeah. can make a huge difference when you aggregate it over a big population. This is just, sorry, this is a little dark, what I'm about to say, but it was just a, a, a little bit of information, a nugget of information that I thought was interesting. Right. So, suicides in the US went downhill drastically when they put sleeping pills in individual popper things, right? Because instead of, instead of having sleeping pills in a pot where you open the top of the pot, you know, you have to like pop each pill out one at a time. And it just meant that it took people like, you know, a couple of minutes to get enough pills out by which time like the moment had passed. Uh. And it's just like, a, I, I think there's something really elegant about a really simple idea like that that doesn't really cost anyone anything. Well, I suppose now I'm thinking about it, there's a lot more plastic in those film productions, <laughs> isn't there? There's no way to win. Um, but no, it's cool. Like doing something like that, like just having having more pigment in surfboards so that, you know, when you think, oh, I've got that nice new white board and then Harry rocks up with his new lost board, pulls it out of the car next to your board and you're like, I guess it's not that white. And you sort of fall out of love with it. And that's just the beginning of you start looking online, cheating on your board with other boards. Yeah, <laughs> That's why I've, I've had mine resin tinted. With bright colours. Yeah, that'll so that, do it. So that they still... Yeah. yeah. I, I'm at the point... I have a, a, a Firewire Omni, actually, that I bought second from you um, that I still ride, and it is like... It's like Prince Charles's teeth yellow. <laughs> 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 but now I'm at the point, like, how long can I keep this board? Now it's you a know? challenge. Exactly. Now absolutely. Challenge. You know, now I'm, it's yellow enough that it just looks like it's a yellow board. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I, I will say, I think that boards that are a solid color that's not white, mm. you know, I think they look really freaking cool. You know, they look a little heavier for some reason. And there's this, I think because of that, people are reluctant to have short boards like thrusters in a solid color. People mm-hmm. want them white because I feel like they, f- they, f- they look as if they feel lighter and they can make your surfing kind of look lighter. But I actually, I actually think having just any board with one solid color looks really cool. I love the way the solid colors, color boards look. Um, but I also did love the way my one-piece neon ski suit looked yeah. as well. So, you know, fashions change. But I, I, I will say it is amazing what what the effects can be of, you know, the, the, just those little visual optical illusions, the way that our brain perceives dark and light and relative colours that is actually so detached from what reality mm-hmm. really is. There's a... I'll post it in the, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners will have seen it, but just in case you haven't listened, I'll put it in the show notes. There was an amazing uh, TED talk a while back, and it was from a guy that, that sort of studied these things. And he was just putting up all these little optical illusions on a screen. And, you know, two squares that are exactly the same color. 
exactly the same color. But if you contextualize it so that your brain thinks one of them's in the shade and one of them's in the light, you perceive them as different colors. Yeah. And it and it just weird stuff like that, just the way our brains perceive those, reality. Those visual illusions actually are fascinating because rather than just being fun tricks, they're an insight into how our brain's constructing reality all yeah. the time. Um, and it's obvious when you look at something like that, but we're doing that with everything, oh, with everything. not just colors. Yeah, social perceptions, yeah. That, everything, yeah. There's one of an elephant jumping, like doing jump rope, and the video has no sound but you can hear it landing it's really cool it's a really cool <laughs> illusion yeah and you hear the landing every time so here's here's the flip side of that you know that obviously we talked about this on the show before and anyone who's interested in sort of skepticism and critical thinking will be aware of these concepts already but you know your your brain constructs everything in narratives you remember stories not isolated data points and and it's, we think of it, when we look at things like that, we sort of think of it as a bug, but really it's a feature. And it was pointed out to me that if you didn't have that in your brain, if you saw a tiger walking along through tall grass, your brain wouldn't be able to go, it's a tiger. It would just be like, there are some stripes, there are some other stripes, now the stripes are in a different place, there are some stripes in another place, and then you would die. Hmm. I just thought that, was, I thought that was an interesting <laughs> analogy. Yeah. So I was going to talk a little bit today, and this is kind of related to what you're talking about, Will, about ocean plastics very specifically. It's been in the news a lot, and in the, uh, we've seen the WSL making a lot of very positive noises about trying to raise awareness and get people to, to sort of... I think they have this thing right now, right, where you kind of make a pledge of what you're going to do to help protect the ocean in the coming year. Yeah. So I thought that was very interesting, and I'm going to circle right back around to it later. But I want to cover some of the... Some of the some of the sort of headlines about ocean plastics, which will really surprise you. They really surprised me. And, um, and f- before I go into this, I'm just going to credit Surf Simply coach Teal Beckenbach, who did a ton of the research, and I'm stealing her thunder quite a lot by doing this bit <laughs> for the podcast while she's not here. So thanks, Teal. Um, so first of all, like, obviously we know there's a ton of plastics in the ocean, and they're a big problem. But and, and there's not a lot of surprises about where it is. About half of it's under the surface, about half of it's on the surface. Most of it is concentrated around the coasts and particularly about high population areas and particularly around areas that don't uh, deal with their waste very well. It's correlated as well with stormwater runoff. That's one of the big ones. And pretty much what happens is all of that plastic goes into the ocean and then some of it comes back up onto the beaches and then it gets washed back out to sea. And once it goes back out to sea, that's pretty much it. So ocean cleanups, cleaning up beaches is really, really powerful because it's kind of like one go that you get at grabbing that stuff before it's gone. And then, you know, it all breaks down in the water and it, and it takes a few years before it either ends up in ocean gyres or it ends up on the ocean floor. And it sounds really bad, all of that. But actually, it's not as bad as you might think because there are mechanisms for getting plastic out of the ocean. None of the Silicon Valley type boats that sweep across the ocean are an effective way of removing it. But what does happen is as all the plastics break down, um, sea life, like organic life, will grow all around the plastic. And then at some point it becomes denser than water and it can sink right to the bottom of the ocean. And then it just sits on the bottom of the ocean and it's pretty inert. The other thing that I was surprised to learn was that the toxins that are in plastics uh, are released from the plastics at far too lower levels for it to damage most animals that eat it. So I'm not advocating for more plastic in the ocean, 
but I, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that there is some mechanism for removing it from the water and also that it's not as toxic as you might, you know, intuitively think to animals that eat it. So, you know, just two small silver linings on our dark cloud. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not so much removing it from the water, is it, as it's, it's just taking it away down into the deep ocean depths. And it's so surrounded by uh, organic material. Yeah, I mean, my understanding of the science is that a post-apocalyptic world, if humans all disappeared tomorrow, is that that plastic which is in the ocean would eventually end up on the bottom. Now, I'm not saying that that's great either, but that's very different from an ocean that's entirely full of plastic. Yeah. And there is probably not a human being alive that hasn't eaten a Lego piece or, you know, chewed a bottle cap or something. Yeah, that's true. And, and, you know, shockingly, that famous report that came out last year that we talked about in the podcast before is that most bottled water that you buy has got microplastics in it that you're drinking and are going through you. Mm. But there's not any evidence so far that that's doing you any harm. So, again, I'm not saying, <laughs> I don't know anyone writing in going, oh, you're advocating for more plastics. I'm not. I'm just saying that it's not. there is some silver lining here. There is some reasons for hope. When you said um, about the organisms or the animals that eat it now, in my kind of uneducated mind, the first image that came up is, you know, when you see people cutting open a whale on the beach and it's full of plastic or a bird's stomach that's full mm-hmm. of plastic, you know. What do you mean by, you know, just so we're clear in case anyone else thought that? So what's What's positive is that it doesn't seem that, the to- for the most part, the toxins that are in the plastics are doing harm to the animals that go through them. The harm is done when it lacerates the inside of an animal. Or if an animal, you know, the classic, we always think of you know, something with his head caught in the old ring pool, things he used to have around cans, right? Like a bird with his head through that. So the actual physical problem of the plastic cutting or tying something is a problem. Or blocking, I guess. Or, or causing a blockage. But the, 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 toxic, uh, the toxicity of the plastic when it's ingested doesn't seem to be a huge problem um, in the same way, like you said, Harry, that a, a kid swallowing a bit of Lego, it comes out the other end. Mm-hmm. Now, the science on how big is one problem versus another is, is the science is out and we, we just don't know how big a problem that is. But um, anyway, there's those, those two kind of like silver linings at the end. Um, thinking about having less plastic in the ocean which i hope is obvious that's kind of what we want right that was kind of surprising to me so you know the the intuitive reaction to it all that we all hear all the time is things like you know don't use plastic straws take your canvas bags to the supermarket is tim minchin sang and all those kind of like recycling things all those kind of things that we do but actually in order to think about how to not get plastics in the ocean the first thing we need to do is go well where are all the plastics coming from And actually, the biggest producer of ocean plastics is China, who produces about three times as much as the next biggest producer of ocean plastics, which is Indonesia, who produces some significant amount more than the next seven or eight. Uh, And the top 10 between them, which are... Vietnam, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Egypt, Malaysia, Nigeria, and Bangladesh. Right. And you just knew that in your head. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm so smart. (laughs) Uh, Jessie has them tattooed on her arms. All her favorite plastic producers. (laughs) Beyond just being China and Indonesia, isn't it? Actually, it's it's three rivers. I think in, in China, in Indonesia, and somewhere else in Southeast Asia. And that's something like 70% of the plastics in the world are coming out of those three rivers. What's kind of interesting is that the US, which is famously got the highest amount of trash 
produced per person, per capita, compared to other countries, which is 2.6 kilograms of trash per person per day, which blows my mind. Um, and I'm sure that I'm included in that statistic. Um, but what's amazing is that almost all of the trash in the US is actually really, really well managed. About 2% of US trash is not managed at all, whereas 76% of Chinese trash isn't managed at all. Um, so <laughs> it's pretty shocking. That's insane. So I know it, it's really good to go and do a lot of these things, but you know the, the real problem is actually, to be honest, like these countries that are on the other side of what's called the Kuznex curve. Have you guys heard of the Kuznex curve? I'm probably pronouncing no. that wrong. Nope. So it, basically, this is, a, this is a, a curve which predicts how wealthy a country is versus how much trash it produces. But very specifically, in this case, plastics, right? And as a country makes more and more money, people buy more and more stuff, and then more, there's more and more trash. And then at a certain point, there's enough wealth per capita that people start investing in looking after the environment and wanting to clean stuff up and take care of it. And that's when you go over the top of that bell curve. And as um, wealth in the country goes up, um, unmanaged trash and, and therefore plastics ending up in the ocean go down. And what we see is a country like the US and, and uh, wealthy countries in Western Europe are on the other side of that curve. And although they're consuming a huge amount of stuff, that the, the amount of trash that we're producing is going down. And what we expect to see is, is developing countries in, in Southeast Asia and Africa are still going to keep going up. They're developing, they're getting wealthier. All 10 of those countries on the list by most economists' predictions, are still a long way off from going over the top of that curve. And so ocean plastics, the production of them is just going to keep going up. And unfortunately, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it does matter whether we use recycled straws, but it's really sort of sneezing into a hurricane. Yeah, I was going to say it's almost even beyond whether a country is just getting wealthy enough that it starts to invest in the environment as it's just investment in infrastructure to, to just take the trash off the streets you know rather than just leaving it there to get blown away or letting people throw it wherever it's it's oh no, we're actually going to create a landfill site yeah it might not even be a recycling facility there's you know a, the majority of trash in western europe and and in the united states ends up in landfill but a properly managed modern landfill site isn't the worst thing in the world. Not that it's great, but it's just not, it's not the worst thing in the world. And it, and it certainly is very good at containing all of that trash and making sure it doesn't end up in the wider environment. Yeah, and I, actually, I, that's it. when you say, look, it's not great, but it's not the worst thing in the world, I think that's really important. A lot of people approach this issue, like a lot of issues, in a very like good and bad, you know, there's only two options, false dichotomy kind of way. And the reality is that like humans do produce trash and we do consume stuff. And, and plastics are incredibly useful. And, 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 often, and often plastics are actually better for the environment than a non-plastic alternative, yeah. precisely because they last so long. And the carbon footprint of producing something that's going to need replacing more often makes it worse. For, instance, for example, if you use paper bags going to a shop instead of plastic bags, you have a bigger carbon footprint. You produce less plastic. You know, but then you've got to say, well, which is the bigger problem, like climate change or ocean plastics? So these questions are always more complicated than you think when you dive into them. If you're using reusable bags, and if, you, if you're using like cotton bags or linen bags or anything like that, you've, you've got to use them every week for about five or ten years before it's more ecologically friendly than a single-use plastic bag. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if you take your single-use plastic bag and then reuse it to line a trash can or something like that, you've got to use the linen bag even longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's actually, I, I think I remember reading somewhere that actually at this point, a single-use plastic, if, if you live in a developed country where the waste disposal is e- efficient and modern so that it's going to go to a, a well-managed landfill, the most environmentally friendly thing you can do is use a single-use plastic bag. So, you know, it might sound to our listeners like we're saying don't bother doing all of these small things that you're doing that make you feel as if you're doing something helpful. And look, I think that it's really important to raise awareness about what a big problem it is. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about plastics and environmental issues and climate change on this podcast. We've had lots of people on and I've got some exciting guests lined up actually to come in the next six months. I'll tell you about in a second. But there is a problem with doing small things that don't have any impact and make you feel like you're doing something good. So there was this really interesting study. I'm going to read the name. It was called, it was a 2014 article in the Journal of Consumer Research. And it was called The Nature of Slacktivism, How the Social Observability of an Initial Act of Token Support Affects Subsequent Pro-Social Action. That must have some jazzy acronym. (laughs) The acronym would be Oh, the Danish Prime Minister. (laughs) (laughs) So what this study found was that basically if you do something small, then you feel like I've done my bit. I've shared my Facebook post. I've shared my Facebook post. I've bought my reusable bag. I've sort of done my bit and I'm good. I don't have to worry about that thing anymore. I've recycled my surfboard. I've recycled my <laughs> surfboard. And, or whatever it is. And then you actually don't go and do something which really does have a positive impact. So what happens is the incentives in our society are all geared around being able to feel like or even tell your, your social group, the people whose opinions matter to you, um, that you've done something positive rather than aligning your actions with what actually has the most impact. So... I mean, it was, and and I do really support the WSL's intention behind trying to raise awareness about ocean plastics, but they recently had the campaign that I spoke about before, and I apologize, WSL, if I'm mischaracterizing what I, my understanding of what you're doing is, but there was, my understanding was that they were asking people to make a pledge or a commitment, like this is what I will do for the coming year, which is almost according to the science, the worst thing you could do because you're encouraging people to think about the easiest thing that sounds the best, make a commitment to it, feel better, and then they're less likely to go on to do something that's actually going to help the problem. Or probably even to hold to that commitment. Quite possibly. Having having made that public commitment, the motivation to actually stick with it. Actually... This is a side point, but the psychology is that if you that the research shows that the psychology of making a commitment publicly means you're more likely to go ahead and do oh, it. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm such a smart ass. You are. Yeah. It's quite helpful when you have a, an information heavy podcast to have a smart ass on the team. <laughs> it sounds kind of dire that we can't personally do anything. Like, do you, like, is there anything we can do, you know, to help or? Well, so the logical thing is to think, well, what can we do to influence the, the ecological policies of these countries that are producing this high amount of plastic? And unfortunately, the reality is 
that there's not very much we can do. There's just not many um, mechanisms out there by which a first world citizen can influence a developing world government. And you know, we see that in lots of other areas, human rights and all kinds of things. It, it does seem funny, doesn't it, that there are so many charities and you know, NGO organizations that are trying to fight plastics. And, and trying to clean up the oceans and trying to do X, Y, and Z. And you think, well, if some of that money was was taken over into private ventures to create recycling facilities, you know, commercial recycling facilities in these countries to create commercial landfill facilities in these developing nations, well, actually, that would be incredibly productive. But nobody seems to be advocating for that. I, I don't know. You're probably right. I don't actually know what the data is on it. But certainly, I can imagine that if you're head of Billabong Marketing, it seems a lot more attractive to go, look, we made these board shots out of recycled plastic bottles than we just built a landfill in China so that this <laughs> town can have their plastics yeah. going there instead of in the ocean, which would probably, I'm guessing, I don't know the data, but you know, would probably... Be a, a be a more positive use of that money, mm -hmm. so you know there's there's not a lot that we can do about it unfortunately, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't keep doing the thing we're doing. Like two percent of U.S. plastic still is unmanaged. Like let's get that down to like one percent or to zero, and all of those beaches that are in the U.S. or or where, whatever country you live in that have got plastics washing up on the shores, yeah, they're still there. They're on your shore. You've got one chance to get them. So please do pick them up, but don't let those acts you know, stop you from then going on to do something meaningful, which you'll probably need to do with your dollars or with your vote, you know. Mm. So what can we do as people that really care about the ocean? There may not be a lot we can do about the plastic situation, but there are two things that we actually can do a lot about. And one of them is climate change, and the other one is overfishing. I'm going to just talk about climate change quickly first. So you know, obviously a huge one if you live in America and we don't like to get too political on the show, but like go out and freaking vote for any politician that just acknowledges climate change is a problem. Like in, in any country, I, I hope that that just even goes without saying. But, um, you know, thinking about climate change, again, that there are real things that you can do uh, in your life that do make a difference. So I was interested to Google what are the biggest single contributors in a developed world first first uh, first world like mm -hmm. what are the what are the biggest contributors and the, the four were kind of surprising so uh, at number four have you guys looked at these already do you know what no. they are mm -hmm. i haven't looked at them okay I we don't yeah. i'm gonna shall i try and guess i i know what do, they are. do you want to take a guess yeah, take well a guess. you mentioned concrete earlier is the construction industry in that top four no it is not okay i'm out of ideas <laughs> well and this is this i would say is is something that you personally can do yeah this is not this is consumer consumer level. construction level huh. this is this is you as a listener to the podcast what can you do that will reduce your carbon footprint okay well i'll say ones that are perhaps more obviously come to mind like uh commute you know driving a vehicle that's in there at number three okay ding 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 um shopping local is that something you can do? No. no. Or at least it's not in here. But uh, these things are measured. And they're, they're, there's going to be some variation here. But some of these numbers are so big that, that even if there is a 50% margin of error, which there seems to be some margin of error between different studies, these numbers are pretty approximate. Mm -hmm. So, Is it have less animals? So uh, <laughs> oh, we've talked about the show before, but not, not having meat in your diet. Okay. Yep. So I'll, give, I'll put some numbers on this. That's, that's 0 0.8 tons of carbon a year per person, right? 
that's like a lot. Yeah, that's so much. Imagine that in a pile. Having one, uh, oh, uh, the next one at number three, yeah, having a car is number two. Next one at number three is one transatlantic flight is 1.6 tonnes of carbon per person per year. It's one transatlantic flight a year. So in other words, not eating meat for a year is, is half of doing a transatlantic flight. So, you know, I, again, wow. that's just something to think about it, put into scale. Yeah. That's 1.6. Do like carbon offset schemes make any, you know, if you were to pay for your flight's worth, because mm-hmm. you can do that, you can do it through the airlines now, there's an option. Yeah, um, it does. I it, mean, it does right. exactly what it says on the tin, right? Okay. You produce, you being on that plane. I mean, obviously, it's not you being on the plane that produces the carbon, but it's the, the amount of carbon the plane produces mm-hmm. divided by how many seats they have, right? Mm-hmm. And then you do something which, you, you pay some money to a company which does something which reduces carbon in another area or sequesters it, and then you offset it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, yeah, it does, it does exactly that. I mean, the thing is, if everyone took the attitude that they wanted to keep using as much carbon as they do, but they want to offset it all, you would very, you'd at some point run out of the ability to offset it mm-hmm. because you can't offset as much carbon as we're producing. So it, it works on a small scale, but you couldn't scale that up as a meaningful solution to mm-hmm. the problem. Yeah. Having a car for a year, and obviously this is set over an average because there's a lot of different cars and there's a lot of different mileages, mm-hmm. um, but living car-free is about 2.4 tons of carbon per year. And then number one, which is way, way off in front of anything else and is going to make a lot of awkward silences in cars around the world as people listen to this podcast, is have one fewer child. An extra child is 58.6 tons of carbon per year. Huh. So what is that, what does that mean? A one less child to what? What is compared to what you would have otherwise? Yeah, you've got you two, two children, of three, just have one, nine instead oh, of okay. ten. Do I have so, to kill a child now? <laughs> no, I don't have any. no, but do you know what? It's, I was thinking about this before I said it, and I just want to make this like really, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, listeners, you do not have to kill any children. I just wanted to make that. No, I just wanted to make this clear. There's a very big difference between having had children and not yet have, if you've decided not yet to have children. And so like, I, I want to talk about this for a second, but I'm not talking to people with children. I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking to you. I'm, I'm a, what I'm about to say, I'm, I am addressing specifically people who have not yet had children and are wondering whether to have children and how many children to have, right? So it's the biggest single thing you're going to do in your life that's going to have an impact on climate change. And some people really want to be parents. And like, there are a lot of kids out there that really need parents, guys. I'm mm-hmm. just saying. Take a child who wouldn't otherwise have a home and give them a, a, lo- a loving, nourishing, nurturing environment for them to grow into and, and become a, a compassionate, scientifically literate member of our society that perhaps themselves will one day go on to help solve this this problem of climate change and how we treat each other with kindness. And I think if you have a child, you should just go, all right, I'm having a child. I'm, I know this is going to be like, have this carbon footprint because, you know, that your child's kids and their kids and their kids, and some of them might eat meat. And, <laughs> and well, no, which is interesting because they have to average all this stuff out, right? Um, what if my kid becomes a child murderer? <laughs> Do I get to have another? <laughs> well, stop. I wonder if, if you could work out or if someone could work out if... Everybody who has and has ever had children had one less. 
where we would be as far as climate change. It would be really hard to, to judge in some ways, wouldn't it? Because there's always that, like one of the really hard problems is, is just, you know, population explosion. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you always get is, again, it's, it's one of those very predictable cycles in the development of a country where they go from having a very, very high birth rate, but also very high infant mortality. Actually, plastic production and kid production correlate with each other. Correlate very highly. Yeah, yeah it sort sure. of goes up and up, and then it kind of <laughs> drops off as countries become wealthier. Kind of yeah. drops off, but the, the the you get this interesting, a very predictable boom in population, where public health and you know quality of living increase to such a point that child mortality drops off. But the culture of that high birth rate doesn't drop off. And so the population of that country suddenly explodes and eventually settles down. And it goes from being normal to have six, eight, ten kids to have two or three kids. But that happens with this larger exploded population. And, and you, you, can, you can track it. Um, you know, you look at, at all all the countries of the world and the dates at which they went through industrialization, you get this huge sort of expansion in the population that happens as that, that, same, that same thing happens. And the, the, the scary thing is, in exactly the same way as there are a lot of countries that haven't made it through that chart on plastic production and, and, and waste disposal, they haven't done it with population either. Mm. Um, there are huge swathes of the world that still have very high death rates and still have very high birth rates and and that we will see that all of those countries have exploding populations in the future but but i mean just talking about population the i they they do think that the population will level off at some point precisely for the reason that you just said as as countries go over the top of that that curve but i thought you know looking at this that looking at these data like really shocked me like I, I've always known that you know they're having a calf like a lot of international flights choosing to have a, a dog or a child like these are all big contributors but I was really blown away with the numbers and what really surprises me is given how big that difference is it's just not something you hear talked about and I assume it's because it's so embedded in our culture like literally it's in our DNA to be parents. And I just think no one wants to touch it. No one wants to touch the topic because it's so sacred to people. And I also think that people are scared of saying, scared of talking about this topic because they think that people who hear it won't be able to differentiate between if you've already had kids, that's fine. There's no, (laughs) there's nothing bad about that. It's the going forwards, who's going to have more that's that's a completely different thing. And I think people worry that if they bring the topic up, people won't be able to make that difference. And they will be they will feel either defensive for having had kids without realizing that they're not the people that that it's about. They're not the people who are being talked to. So I just feel like I want to make that difference. And I, I, I wonder whether maybe that's why we don't hear more about this topic. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the same with adoption. Like it's so like sacred, like to adopt a kid or to have a kid like. I, I'm glad that process is really hard to adopt a kid and go through it. Like, I think that should be very important. But I really wish, like, there was more awareness of it, you know? Like, just knowing, I don't know, just putting out there about how many kids actually do need homes. Like, how many kids do need a family? How many kids do need to be adopted? Like, you just don't hear about it. You don't see research on it. 
and, and knowing our good friends who adopted a few years ago and knowing how difficult the process was for them. Yeah. And I mean, but again, I'm not saying just make it easier is the answer right. either. Yeah. That's so, but I, I think that, I don't know. I think we all are kind of an ongoing topic of conversation on this podcast is what will people look back on in the next generation and think is ridiculous. Um, you know, and whether it's wearing helmets or at Chopu or whatever <laughs> else is smoking in the office. But, you know, I, I think that it would be cool if as a society we just I'm not saying we shouldn't have kids, but we just didn't take it for granted that you definitely have kids. Like, how about it's just a decision that you make? Like, are you going to choose to not be a parent? Are you going to choose to adopt? Are you going to choose to be a biological parent? Like, that should just be a conversation rather than a default, right. I think. Yeah, I agree. The other big problem with the ocean where you as an individual in a first world country can make a really big difference is overfishing which is a huge 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 problem and I'm not going to dive into that right now but I had a fascinating conversation with friend of the pod uh, S Professor Samuel Perkis head of marine geosciences at Miami University and at the end of it I was like damn we should have recorded that so we're going to sit down at some point soon and recreate the conversation so that you can benefit from his far greater level of scientific literacy than mine. Um, another guest who I want to get on the show, if I can get her at some point, is Professor Amy Clement. This is a bit of a tangent, but I had a fascinating dinner with her recently, and she was the person who discovered, uh, this, at least this is the leading hypothesis, that the Gulf Stream is not, in fact, what, what, what warms northern Europe, which, as far as I was concerned, was settled science for like a really long time. So I guess in summary, what to make of all that kind of messy, big pile of data, I guess, you know, don't feel as guilty about first world countries producing a lot of plastic, do do beach cleanups, you know, try to try to advocate for political causes, which which encourage inter-country collaboration rather than isolationism. I don't know, like, is that a helpful thing? I guess so. Definitely vote for people who believe in looking after the environment and who believe in the science on, on, on climate change, you know, and I familiarize yourself with how the different things in your life, whether it's choosing to have an extra child or having a car or taking a transatlantic flight, you know, just familiarize yourself with the, those numbers and, and kind of and what they are in terms of how much carbon you're producing and, and make thoughtful choices. I, I, think, I think that's the best that we can be right now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, after uh, those maybe slightly sobering pieces, um, we've got a couple of what to watches just to uh, just to brighten your your lives a little bit before we're back in a few weeks time. So, uh, Rue, what have you got for us? I saw so the other day it just popped up on my YouTube feed and it was the drunk history thing on YouTube from mm -hmm. Comedy Central, which is pretty funny. And they did one on Eddie Icow and his whole thing. And it was I mean, it's it's a it's a tragic and beautiful story, but like it's <laughs> it was so good. I loved it. I can't remember the name of the guy who's narrating it. Do you know who that was? No, I can't remember either. But yeah, that was pretty funny. I was listening to a really interesting interview that Adam Conover did, the, the Adam Ruins Everything guy, his oh, yeah. podcast that he does. And he gets a little bit shouty on occasions, but actually the interviews that he does are really interesting. But he was talking to someone who's, whose job was history education. And she was saying that show, Drunk History, has just done so much for just opening people's minds to, you know, e engaging people that wouldn't otherwise engage in history with the subject. Just putting the question in someone's head that they're going to go away and try and find the answer to. Jesse, what have you got for us to listen to? All right. I got us 
Uh, I just recently watched Nueva Generation. How are your Spanish lessons going, Jesse? Más o menos. Nueva Generation. <laughs> he told us not to say that, yeah, so really you've just disappointed the teacher. That's okay. That's still my go-to. <laughs> With Ian Gatron. Sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. Um, and also Zach Flores. And it they go to mainland Mexico, and it's just they're riding twin fins. They're riding asymmetrical boards. They're riding all these like cool long boards. And I didn't know this watching it, but I read like the comments after and Zach Flores basically surf switch stance the whole time. And I was like thinking in the video, like, oh, he's a, you know, an average surfer <laughs> surfing switch stance. Yeah. He jumped switch stance into a couple of the tubes at the beginning or at least one at the beginning. Yeah. I thought that movie was beautiful. It's very beautiful. I, I love the, I love any surfing where the fins on the board aren't creating enough drive that you have to surf off the rails and there's a bit of slip. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, you know, just twin fins and stuff. That's why I love all those Dayan movies, Deus movies and Ryan Birch movies and stuff. Yeah. It just really got like, we were watching, Will and I were watching it. It got us pumped up. We are like, let's go surfing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good, a good, a good what to watch for sure. Uh, Will? I recently saw Julian Wilson's YouTube channel and we got into it a little bit. He's only done maybe four episodes of his kind of tour experience this year i imagine it's this year yeah um, but he released one more recently it's called the north shore boogie and it's just him slow motion dropping into like 30 foot third reef pipe it's pretty unbelievable um so check that out i love that video i i could watch people surfing pipeline all day it's because every wave's a bit different and it's just it's just the most fun wave to watch mm-hmm. do you know what i thought was a bit mean though do you remember the, what the, how the video finishes no there's like a it's kind of an overweight elderly guy sitting in some very small swimming trunks on some rocks and his wife's taking his picture on the phone. He's striking a oh, fairly yeah. sort of crotch yeah. open yeah. pose. Yeah. And it is it is pretty funny. And then they're like looking at the photo on the phone afterwards. But also it's a little bit like I'm a beautiful, talented, professional surfer laughing at these unfortunate, ugly people. It felt a little bit like that. Is that just me? Am I being too much of a social justice warrior? Did it hit home a little bit? (laughs) 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 So my my video for you guys is uh, The Art of Scoring. Uh, which Surfline put together, and it uh, they've they've grabbed a whole bunch of different athletes from um, mostly U.S. athletes, but all around the world, and and just kind of told the stories of of, of them going off on little strike missions, seeing a swell, booking tickets, flying off, doing everything that we've basically just advocated that you shouldn't do. Break, <laughs> it's funny. Boards. I was watching the movie after having researched my piece. <laughs> Impregnating women. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. It's possible. <laughs> um, but no, the guy's going around, um, and, and I, I, I've always been fascinated that that idea of, of sort of the surf strike mission, which was a real rarity. You know, when we, when we were growing up and surf forecasting wasn't that good, you really didn't have a lot of warning that were going to be good waves. Like a strike mission would be a, a six-hour drive to somewhere. Mm. Like on the day that the wet, you know, you know the waves are going to be good tomorrow because you can actually see the weather coming in, and you you drive six hours. And now these guys are doing strike missions. Uh, I mean, Brett Barley literally flies halfway around the world from from Florida to uh, Namibia, and it uh, I don't know it's 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 quite cool. It, how, however, however destructive it is to the environment. It's quite cool storytelling. I was just, I so I was, I was checking all of my, you know, carbon footprint stats before the show this afternoon. I was watching that movie, 
And then there was the bit where Koa Rothman's at Tavarua for a week and he flies back to Hawaii and then he's like, oh, there's a good swell coming. So he just flies back to Fiji yeah. for, one, <laughs> for one session. I tell you what I really liked was the closing part with Nick Von Rupp. Is that his name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When, his, when he's his sort of him and his shape. I don't know who his shaper is. I guess he's some famous guy. I can't remember who it was. But uh, he is was, he Pukas? I'm not sure. I can't remember who it was, but he was talking to him about, you know, building him this kind of knifey, little more bladey board for Mavericks so that he can just try and backdoor the left at Mavericks. And um, he just goes out and gives it a go and gets a sick one after getting nailed a couple of times. Mm. And it's just like, it's kind of the surfing equivalent of just walking up to the plate, you know, in baseball and just pointing out of the park where you're going to smash it and then just <laughs> smashing it out. Like, really cool. Yeah. Unless he went out... What I would have done if I was him would have just gone out and like done the session and then been like, let's record a little bit where you're daring me to do that thing that I didn't know I was going to do. You know, like drawing the target around the bullet after it's hit the barn door. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is all from us for this episode. Uh, We will be back in a few weeks time when we're all back from our Indonesian and Fijian adventures. Um, So for now, until then, goodbye. We love you. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.